Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. We're going to be discussing pesticides and food, uh, eating safely and sustainably. Uh, my name is Philip Hiltz. Uh, I'm the director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT, uh, and I'll be the moderator. Um, this event is a collaboration of the Forum and the Huffington Post. Um, the Forum is a live webcasting series about health policy produced at the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, which is also, by the way, celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. Uh, the, this event is also part of the Andalo series on current science controversies. Uh, we're live tweeting at Forum HSPH using hashtag pesticides food, pesticides plural food, all one word. You may also email questions starting now to our panelists uh, at theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. Uh, so today's panelists, starting uh, from my immediate right, Chen Cheng Lu, uh, Alex to his friends, um, Associate Professor of Environmental Exposure Biology at the Harvard School of Public Health. Mark Weisskopf, uh, Associate Professor of Environmental and Occupational Epidemiology, Harvard School of Public Health. Gary Adamkowitz, Senior Research Scientist at HSPH Department of Environment Health and co-creator of the course called uh, From Farm to Fork, Why What You Eat Matters. And uh, Carolyn Dimitri, Associate Professor of Food Studies, Steinhardt School of Culture, Education and Human Development at New York University, and a former research economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, so today's program is about an hour long. Uh, and first we will talk about the intersection of pesticides, food, health, and policy, the general picture. And then we'll try to go to solutions, sustainable food productions, and choices. Uh, we will take questions from the audience online and questions from the studio as well at the end. Uh, we'll be streaming three videos during uh, the discussion uh, from the Huffington Post. They depict some of what we'll be discussing today. Uh, and we're going to start the program with a brief AOL video from a, a 2012 Stanford study that sparked some controversy when it came out um, because it did not find much difference in nutritional or health uh, things between organic and conventionally grown student, school, uh, um, foods. Uh, most people had the sense that uh, organic has got to be healthier. This study didn't see that. Uh, it did show that uh, on organic food there's less pesticides. Um, but uh, in, when we're looking at the video, there are two people uh, being interviewed, and one of them is Dina Bravada, the senior author of the Stanford paper, and pediatrician Alan Green, who is also the past president of the Organic Center. So now we go for clip one. If it says organic, many shoppers believe it must be better for you. I do it for my health, I, and I do it for the, um, sustainability. But a new study from Stanford University questions the health advantages of organic products over their less expensive counterparts. The team evaluated more than 5,000 articles in over 220 studies. We found that there were no specific foods or fruits that um, had any significant difference between organic and conventional. If people are looking for a really robust evidence base for differences, we simply did not find that. The Stanford study did find that organic produce is 30% less likely to be contaminated with pesticide residues than conventional fruits and vegetables but found both to be safe for consumption. 
Some doctors say the study's scope was too limited. It matters which pesticides, some are more toxic than others. It matters how many pesticides and how much total pesticides. That's, that's not taken into account. The organic food business has grown tremendously over the last 15 years and is worth over $30 billion. A top advisor to the Organic Consumers Association criticized the findings because, quote, the author's very qualified conclusions do not match the data, pointing out that by the study's own admission, organic food does lower exposure to pesticides and resistance to antibiotics. When it comes to organic, when it comes to food in general, we're making an investment in our body. Every bite we take is either an investment or it's a debt we're taking out we're going to have to repay someday. And I believe organic is an excellent investment in our health. Many consumers say the extra cost is worth it for reasons that go beyond health. They last longer in your fridge. They just taste differently. It you know, may not give the added health benefits, but you know you're helping the smaller markets. So I'd, I'd probably still do it either way. Researchers acknowledge no study looking at the health benefits of organic food has exceeded two years. Too short a period to gauge the impact they could make over a lifetime. Okay. Uh, Alex, you want to give the big picture for us about the use of pesticides in farms and how consumers should think about these things? Well, another reason that the Stanford paper is so controversial because as more and more people embracing organic food productions, they really question the motivation of the authors, and some of them are medical doctors at practice, by concluding that the food that you will commonly eat that with those uh, chemicals in terms of pesticides, um, synthetic growth hormone, and uh, antibiotics are actually as safe and healthier as those food that contain none of those pesticides, none of those chemicals. So, in, on the large scale food production per se, especially in this country, unfortunately, pesticide is being integrated into the whole production. Uh, for example, genetically modified crops that, um, that corn or soybean, for example. 90, more than 90% of those corn and soybean that planted in these countries are genetically modified. And the reason that the farmer plant those genetically modified soybean or corn because they can spray as much as pesticide they want without harming their uh, plant. And that was a design. And, and for those non-GMO food production, like for example, almond, uh, fruit trees, and vegetables, they have to rely on pesticide heavily because they're growing those food on the monocultural mono practice on a very large sizable land. So they bound to have a lot of insect and weed problem and they have to uh, use pesticides. In terms of the safety level of pesticide, unfortunately, we only have one guidelines, which is called tolerance. Tolerance is not set up to, uh, to protect public health. Tolerance is set up to make sure the farmer behave, have the best uh, practice in the field. So the amount of pesticide that they spray would accomplish their goal, either to control uh, the insect or the weed. Tolerance, there are other matrices that somehow has a little bit of public health flavor to it, which is called either reference dose or acceptable daily intake. But those numbers are mainly derived from risk assessment practice using data from uh, animal experiment. So we all know that those data contain a large quantity of uncertainties and biases. And uh, most importantly, um, neither reference dose or acceptable daily intake has any legal implication whatsoever. Right? So, so, so why 
why there is a lack of a pesticide research, especially pesticide and health effect research. There are two reasons. And one the apparent reason is that there's no control population that we can use in our study. In other words, uh, everybody in this room uh, exposed to pesticide to some degree. If it's not from your food, it's probably from your offices, uh, your schools, your municipal park, or your own home, both inside and outside. So that's very difficult from the epidemiology perspective that to conduct research to compare people that are exposed to pesticide versus no uh, pesticide exposures. The other obstacle um, for pesticide health research is the temporal separation from exposure to diagnosis of disease. Um, we know that when we have a bad air quality day, we will see the increase of asthma attack in kids. We probably will see a large number of people rush to emergency room because the cardiovascular problems. But we cannot tell you for sure what happened to a bowl of salad you just ate uh, today in the lunch will lead to the occurrence of cancer in 10 or 20 years. And that is the, uh, the problem with that. Um, we recently um, involved in a honeybee research that sort of highlight what I just told you the problem of the pesticides. So in 20, uh, 2009, we look into the, the problem in terms of exactly what caused the massive disappearance of honeybee, globally speaking. And we found out that it was because of a new uh, insecticide called neonicotinoid. Uh, the neonicotinoid is fascinating from the pest control uh, uh, perspective because all you need to do is to coat the seed that you're going to plant with a little bit of neonicotinoid. Those pesticides can grow with the plant to every tissue, um, even until we harvest. So the, the, the hypothesis was linking the, the GMO corn uh, that grow in Iowa or, or Nebraska to the CCD occurrence that we, the first report in, in Florida. So what is the connection here? Well, obviously, we use those genetically modified corn to manufacture a lot of byproducts. And one of the very common byproducts that everybody knows here is so-called high fructose corn syrup. High fructose corn syrup is an alternative to sugar for many, many commercial beekeepers. And they fed their, um, their honey beehive with those high fructose corn syrup that is contaminated with neonicotinoid. And they eventually lead to uh, the, the depths of the, of the, of the honeybees. Mm. We do know those neonicotinoids are highly toxic to honeybees uh, from the acute perspective, meaning that certain level you're going to kill the bee right away. But CCD has nothing to do with acute toxicity. In fact, CCD is so relevant to a term called sublethal exposures. Mm -hmm. So what is sublethal exposure? Well, sublethal exposure is the level that everybody in, in this room exposed to neonicotinoids. So, the CCD actually as a result of the consequence that we don't know. However, those pesticides are commonly being used in, in, in this country right now. Mm. Okay, let, let's uh, move on to uh, Mark. Tell us, um, we know that these levels are low and we can ha have a hard time measuring them, but we know on some populations there really is an effect. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's true. So I come at it from the environmental epidemiology perspective where I'm trying to look at the relation between exposure to certain pesticides and health outcomes. So um, I have a neuroscience background. We know I focus on neurological disorders. 
We know that many pesticides are toxic to the nervous system. That's sort of a basic fact. They're often mm -hmm. designed to do exactly that. The question really is, uh, at, you know, are humans exposed to them enough and at a level that is going to cause health problems? We know that's the case in many scenarios. There's very strong evidence for an association between pesticide exposures and Parkinson's disease. That runs kind of across the gamut of pesticides, mm -hmm. certainly insecticides and herbicides. Um, there's a lot of good evidence that it is a problem for neurodevelopment. There are several uh, large studies here in the U.S. There are also international studies as, as well that have been following kids and looking at their exposures over from the time the mother was pregnant mm -hmm. through their early life. And we do see, those studies all clearly see effects on neurodevelopment, whether it's ADHD-type symptoms, whether it's pervasive development disorder, or just general cognitive performance. Mm -hmm. um, they, though, what we tend to do with this from an epidemiologist, epidemiologist's perspective is we have to look at more highly exposed groups, occupational settings, in part because we have a, a really big problem in measuring this. Mm -hmm. So figuring out how much someone is exposed to a pesticide is a tremendously difficult problem. If you're in an occupational setting, that gets resolved to a large degree. One can track it through occupational type. We're talking about exposure. migrant farmers. Or? So it could be migrant farmers. It could be plantation, you know, there's the workers on sort of banana farms and, mm -hmm. uh, or rather pineapple, I think, in, in Hawaii, things like that, or sugar cane production. Either, either farmers, I've done work with farmers in France, where they, you know, they track what they are using. There's a large study in the United States called the Agricultural Health Study that focuses on pesticide applicators, in part because they're highly exposed, but also because they know what they're using, so we can count it up. Um, the studies on kids, you know, in the old days when it was pesticides like organochlorines that stuck around for a long time, we have a lot better data on that because it's a lot easier to get an assessment of their long-term exposures. Newer pesticides like organophosphates and things like that, that that degrade more quickly or are gone faster are much harder from our perspective. So if we're working in slightly higher exposed groups, that gets easier. All those neurodevelopmental studies in kids in the U.S., uh, they're either on sort of farm worker children or inner city populations where the exposures tend to be higher, mm -hmm. but they have to be tracked constantly to take many, many measurements to get an idea of really what they're exposed to. It gets much more difficult when we look at the general population in the U.S. and say, just from what you're eating and your food in general, uh, is that a problem? And, and that's a difficult question to ask because I can't just count how many strawberries you've eaten because the amount of pesticide in one strawberry to the next right. can vary tremendously. Right. And it's very hard to get serial measurements many times on people and follow them over time. But mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the, the sort of proof of concept has been shown. There are neurological effects of pesticide exposures. Mm -hmm. The tricky part is now bringing it right. down to that lower level exposure that right. we, we may all face uh, to see. And so that brings us to the consumer. Uh, if you're a consumer walking into a store, what do you think? I, uh, I think for the average consumer, this is a really complicated issue. And to be honest, I think for aver your average environmental health researcher, it's a complicated issue. Um, just like many of the issues that um, environmental issues and health issues that tie to food. And just but I should say, just because it's complicated doesn't mean it's unaddressable or not solvable. Mm -hmm. And so we have to keep that in mind. I think, you know, the complexity here was part of the motivation. You mentioned the farm to fork, fork class uh, for developing that class and really trying to think about all the implications of our food decisions. It's not just about personal health. It's about environmental effects. Mm -hmm. It's about climate change. It's about sustainability. So how do you put all those, th those things on the same balance sheet um, policy-wise? How do you put those things on the same balance sheet for an individual who wants to make a thoughtful decision? 
And then the question is, once you know what all these things might mean and what all these effects might be, what do you do about it? And yeah. I think for the average consumer, transparency is a big issue. They just don't have all the information that mm -hmm. they might want to make a decision walking down right. uh, any aisle in the supermarket. Um, I also think it's more, we have to get beyond thinking just about residues for pesticides. I mean, that's obviously a key focus. We're all concerned about that exposure. But pesticides are also part of this bigger system in you know, conventional agriculture. And so even if you didn't have any residues in your food, you want you know, to think about the environment. You want to think yeah. about the environment. You want to think about those migrant workers that Mark was talking about. You want to think about what industrial production of pesticides means. You want to think about pesticide-resistant weeds. You know, there's a whole system out there beyond just that level of residue left in the apple that you're consuming. Yeah. Um, the good news is there are some things that consumers can do to avoid pesticide exposure. Uh, there are issues, though, in terms of uh, those choices are constrained by availability. Um, cost is a big issue. Your average American family can't really sub, uh, afford to go entirely organic. Mm. Um, if you have the luxury of being able to afford uh, organic, and I should say that cost premium has gone down over the years, thankfully, um, you know, you can make better choices. But that's another issue is that many people are might have constraints on their ability to to avoid these residues, residues. The other thing I just want to mention is that, you know, we think of organic as this return to traditional methods, yeah. but it's not as mature an industry as conventional agriculture. We've had decades of conventional agriculture, and there's a science to that. Mm -hmm. And so as this market grows, organic is also become, going to become a more mature industry, you know, and, and you have to think about the, all the different ways you can measure efficiency here. You know, people are concerned about yields and losses. But I'm hopeful that um, if we put our, if the market grows, if there's an investment from into research on better methods of organic agriculture at the farm, that this will move into a better place where right. the, the cost premium right. maybe doesn't vanish, but it gets much more. Which leads us right to the farmers. So we have a clip coming up. Um, uh, it's about a conventional farmer who decided to experiment with not using pesticides, and he describes some of the challenges in doing that. And what we do is we sell farm fresh produce here, and we're not organic, but we try, we do our best to keep that down. Now, usually we spray our corn for the earworm, but this year, I don't know, I took a gamble on it, and I decided I wasn't going to spray it. And we had a few worms. And when people peel that ear back and there's that great big old green worm looking at them, you know, and I always tell them that's the protein in the corn, you know. <laughs> and some, some people will not buy it with that worm in there. And okay, fine, take another one. But in the same instance, you know, my wife has a little sign there that says, this corn must be, this corn was so good I just couldn't leave it alone, the worm. <laughs> you know, and, but we didn't spray. And it saved us, saved us a little money on chemical and a lot of time. But we also can say that it hasn't been sprayed either. And people like the fact that it's not sprayed. Now that's kind of new, isn't it? What? That consumers are interested in whether it's... Oh, they want everything chemical free. The American public wants their product to be flawless. They're very fussy. They don't want no blems. They don't want no worms. They don't want no wormholes, no insect. But they also don't want it to be sprayed. And you can't have the both best worlds. Now, some people have organics 
and organic is fine. I'm not condemning that, but but it won't quite be as big. But you know, okay, it's organic. But you also have that element that don't care either. Yeah, I think this is the best. And that's, but most people, how do I put it? They come in the store, they'll usually buy what we have on the rack and they usually don't ask. They don't ask if it's, some people do. Where we find more of the asking is at our Saturday markets that we do. We get a lot of, has this been sprayed? Has this been sprayed, you know? Well, sometimes when we sell apples and the apples we buy from another orchard, you know, be a fool to say they haven't been sprayed. They had to be sprayed. If they didn't have sprayed, every apple you'd pick up would have worm in it. And so it's just something that we're working toward more to get away from the chemicals. But, hey, when you've got a bug problem, you either disc it under or spray it, one or the other. So, Carolyn, tell us about the farmer's dilemma. We can see it there a bit. Right. So my joke in graduate school was, <clears throat> you know, with a bunch of people getting a Ph.D. in agricultural and natural resource economics, the only farm we knew was Pepperidge Farm. So <laughs> I am definitely an armchair observer. Um, but, you know, we have these funny views about farmers in our society, right? We think they're hard workers, they're the salt of the earth, like they're like upstanding moral people. And I think that our view of farms and farmers is just doesn't really mesh with reality. Because in fact, farming is a business. It's really not unlike any other business, um, except that they happen to grow food instead of maybe produce your car that you drive. Um, and people who are growing that food are doing it really to make a living um, for themselves and for their families. And in fact, farming is an extremely risky business. Um, whereas a factory production, you can really automate everything and you can, if you get everything of the right size, you have this very nice product at the end. And farming isn't really like that. You, you have your inputs, you have your soil, your seed, you know, you put them in the ground and you don't really know 100% what's going to come out. You could have unanticipated weather, you could have unanticipated pests, you have weeds. So there is this element of risk that is, is difficult to manage. And in the end, the farmer's livelihood depends upon how much is grown, what it looks like, um, how, which really is another way of saying how much can be sold and the price they get for their product. Um, and so the way the farmer chooses to farm in a way is how do you manage those production risks? How do you keep your yield as high as possible? Um, and different farmers have different methods. So the conventional farming system has really relies upon chemical inputs, um, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, to grow this food and have it come out looking in a specific, specific way. Organic farmers will use different methods. They'll rotate their crops. They will use compost for fertilizer. They will spray, but they typically don't use synthetic chemicals. They will use approved um, <clears throat> natural chemicals. So the whole concept of organic not using pesticides, I just want you to banish that notion and the fact that an organic product is never sprayed. It's just that the, the products that are used are supposed to be less harmful to you and less harmful to the environment. Um, so in a way, the organic farming system is using labor where a conventional farming system is using these chemical inputs. Um, and so what, what can we take from this? So we see about 4% of the organic market, 4% um, of food sales are for organic products. Less than 1% of the organic, of farmland in the U.S. is organic. But I do think we, there is a lot of hope, right? I think a lot of organic farmers are are good at farming. They've shown that you can actually make a lot of money 
by growing foods in a way that are more in sympathy or in um, uh, working with the ecosystem, in harmony with the ecosystem, and that you can avoid the use of a lot of synthetic inputs, but in return, you have to use a lot more labor. And I think that that kind of sums up, and you have to be willing maybe to accept lower yields, although again, this is another area where the research hasn't been done and it's not really clear whether the yields will go down. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of myths about farming and organic farming relative to conventional farming, but I do think that organic farming is a viable production system and it should not be dismissed out hand by some groups. Not that anyone here does that. We're all on the pro-organic side. Yeah. So now we're going to start talking about solutions, uh, maybe even policies, and we're going to start that with an, another clip uh, on the Dirty Dozen, the list of ones that have the most pesticide on them. Uh, we'll stream the, this 2013 video from AOL off the Huffington Post website. With overwhelming food choices and infinite information, it's hard to make decisions about the food we buy from supermarkets. The Environmental Working Group recently released their yearly list of grocery store produce items that are known to contain the most chemicals. Known as the Dirty Dozen List, the organization compiles the list by analyzing over 28,000 food samples. Landing the number one spot is apples. Strawberries rank in at two, followed by grapes, celery, peaches, and spinach. Potatoes, cherry tomatoes, and hot peppers came in at the bottom of the list, whereas cucumbers, nectarines, and sweet bell peppers landed in the middle. Experts suggest washing thoroughly to reduce any harmful effects from pesticide, or you can always buy the organically grown produce for such foods. For those indulging in mushrooms, sweet potatoes, cantaloupe, grapefruit, sweet corn, and kiwi can feel a little better knowing that these supermarket produce items made it to the top of the clean list, labeling them as the products with the least amount of pesticides. Gary, how should we really look at this list? Is this uh, something useful? I, I think it's very useful, and we might have a visual <coughs> aid that shows the, the current uh, EWG list. So yeah, the EWG is. list is updated every year. Uh, in the clip, they were talking about the 2013 list. There's a little movement year to year. Um, one thing I think people don't realize is that all that the, the data that EWG uses to develop these lists is actually government data. It's USDA data, random samples. Um, and this year's list, I think there were about 32,000 samples that were tested for a, a, a suite of pesticides. And so EWG basically wants to try to make sense, as you can imagine, that's a lot of data. So EWG wants to make sense of that for the consumer. And the focus has always been on the Dirty Dozen and Clean 15, but there's actually a full list. So about 48, 48 to 50 individual produce items that are on the list. You can actually go back to the original data if you're so interested for the, uh, for the environmental health nerds in the audience. If you want to actually look at the data, you can. Um, but it's a use, the way you can use a list like this is really for those who don't have the luxury of going all organic and you're concerned about these things. What EWG is suggesting, and I think it's a good strategy, is you can use it to sort of guide where to spend your dollars. So the dirty dozen list, these are, you know, uh, statistically speaking, these are um, individual produce items that have higher residues. So if you're going to go organic, and it is a cost premium to you that matters, then you might think about going organic for the produce items that are on the dirty dozen list, okay? And the good news is that there is a clean 15 list where, you know, 
Uh, I think avocados were the cleanest on the list, only 1% had detectable levels of pesticides, only 11% of pineapples, and only 5.5% of the pesticides on the Clean 15 list had, had two or more pesticides. So they, in creating these lists, they both look at levels and number of detects. Um, so, so there's some good news out there. Um, and then on the Dirty Dozen list, every sample of imported nectarine tested positive for at least one pesticide. 99% of apples tested positive. There were individual samples of celery cher and cherry tomatoes that showed more than 10 different pesticides. So once again, if you're thinking about going organic, maybe you start with this list. Um, EWG tries to make it easy for everyone. You can carry it around as a wallet card. There's an app for that, uh, which you can download for free. Um, but it's really just a one tool, you know, and it's a very complicated data set, a complicated issue, but it's just giving consumers that tool to think about. I mean, it's all about, it's also about transparency, just yeah. knowing what, what the data show, but it's just one tool that a consumer could use. Yeah. I guess there is a sense that um, if you had your druthers, you'd take pe all the pesticides out. But if we can't do that, mm -hmm. what should we be do How should we think about this, Mark? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess from my, you know, my initial perspective is exactly that, right? I mean, you, a strawberry is a beneficial thing. If the strawberry doesn't have pesticides in it, that uh, can't be worse, <laughs> right? So um, from the very simplistic perspective, if we can get them all out, then yeah. you're better off. Mm -hmm. um, it's a it's a obviously a tricky policy issue at that stage. We there's a lot of good evidence that fruits and vegetables are very good for you. So if the choice becomes not eating these things and avoiding the pesticides versus eating them and getting pesticides, I don't know that we have enough data to say that that's a good choice to make, right? So um, I mean, there's many layers add on to this that I don't get into as much, but they're absolutely relevant, which is the health of the workers in the fields, the right. whole ecosystem effects of all of this stuff. But just from a purely individual health perspective, you know, obviously getting them out is what we would like to do, but it, you know, there's a balance and a policy balance. What I will say is that we certainly expect that as we get lower and lower levels, that the effects probably are going to be less than what we would see at higher levels. Mm -hmm. But we have to be careful, and, and this came up in the context of, I think, that Stanford paper, but certainly many uh, other settings, if not that one, where there's this issue of, well, is it clinically relevant, these effects? Right. That's another place we have to be extremely careful because these effects may be subtle, and you might say with any one individual, you're never going to tell that that individual has had a very slight neurological effect. But if you start looking at a population-wide level and we just shift everybody over ever so slightly so that any individual isn't all that different than they would have been without it, well, if you look at a bell curve of the population, you've now shifted potentially millions of kids or whatever the mm. outcome is you're interested in into a problematic range where it's going to be extra cost to the society, it's special education. So it's, it's, you, we, we have to also think at the population level that very small effects at low levels you know, over the entire population can have tremendously large impacts. Are we going to get there? Are we going to have enough research so that someday we'll be able to say, here's something you really need to... Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is the way envi occupational environmental epidemiology goes, right? We start with the high exposure settings because we sort of want to see, well, is there a problem? I mean, if there is one, we would expect it where the exposures are highest. We've done that. We see it in occupational settings. Yeah. We now have these studies on kids, right, that are not occupationally exposed, but they're a 
higher exposure group, but it's probably lower than someone working, you know, right. in spraying the pesticide in a field, we see the effects there. And so what the research does is it then keeps sort of marching down and says, mm -hmm. all right, now we got to look at the lower and lower exposed people. Mm -hmm. You know, the, an analogous situation is the work that has been done over many, many years on lead exposure. Right? Right. We used to think that 60 micrograms per deciliter in your blood was normal in this country. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're over five, that's problematic. And, right. and, and what we're basically seeing mm -hmm. is that as low as you go, you still see effects. And, and that's in part because there is no sort of biological activity. There's nothing that lead does for you that is good. It is not used in your body for anything. No enzymes need it. And so it effectively seems to cause problems no matter how low you go. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be the case for pesticides too. There will ultimately be this policy balance of we need a stable food production system. We, you know, you don't want to not eat fruits and vegetables for their yeah. benefits. But, you know, if we could put some effort into figuring out how to produce these things without the pesticides, I can't imagine that wouldn't help. Yeah. That's great. Um, so, Carolyn, uh, um, can you put this in the broader picture of agriculture? And well, I guess I'd like to put it in the context of agriculture and the environment, uh, yeah. because I think you have to go from the premise that growing food is going to disrupt the ecosystem, and then the question is, how much disruption do you want to engage in? Um, and then you add onto this possible human um, health effects, and I, I think that there is a lot of evidence for if we are interested in protecting biodiversity, if we're interested in climate change, if we're interested in oil, water quality, soil quality, those are, it's already been shown that pesticides and other agricultural chemicals damage all those aspects of our, our agricultural ecosystem. And how is this going to um, affect food production in the future, right? And how does that feedback to affect human health? So, I mean, I think in that sense, looking at alternative methods, what could we do? Well. Studies have shown that if conventional farms would adopt what are called best management practices, which might be single practices that an organic farmer would use, which could be like buffers or hedgerows around your fields, or um, putting cover crops on your land and studying, letting it lie fallow, that just bringing these practices into a conventional system improves the soil quality and it improves the flora and fauna and helps deal with pests and weeds. So, I mean, I think looking at a, I, I, I think one shortcoming I see with the kind of research I think that we all do is we are all actually drawing the very same conclusion, right? That there needs to be more regulation or changes in how chemicals are used on farms for different reasons. And somehow I feel like if we could have like a stronger force of bringing this type of work together, I mean, if, if people all over are doing the same kind of research in different areas, and in the end, the same conclusion is that these chemicals are damaging for multiple reasons. I mean, I feel like that is a good basis for at least policy, increased poli or policy changes. I mean, what they would be is really hard to say, but right. we could address that another day. Is there um, a sense that conventional farmers are maybe willing to go that way, some, some part of the way? Yeah, well, I mean, I think conventional farmers you know, are stewards of their land. You know, they think about it, like an organic farmer would say, I'm a steward of my land in a better way. But I don't think conventional farmers are walking around saying, let me destroy my ecosystem, you know? <laughs> but I, I think if you can show, you might reduce some of your input costs, you might have higher yields, you might mm -hmm. be preserving the value of your land because you're enhancing the productive capacity over the future. Yeah, I mean, they're good business people. They want mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm improve their profitability and they don't, but they, you also want to look at it over time, you know, profitability today versus profitability in 20 years. And so imp anything that will improve the quality of your land will necessarily improve the long-term stream of profits that that land can generate. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, well now let's take questions. We're gonna start with one online. We have a lot coming in online on Twitter and we have a very active chat going on. So um, here's one from the live chat. What about integrated pest management, IPM methods of pest management? Why is IPM not part of this discussion? <laughs> so uh, to answer the question, I'm afraid to say that those terminology has been manipulated in a way that forced people to believe that if the product label natural would be a healthy and good food, even though it's a genetic modified crops. So IPM started with a good notion to help farmer transition from conventional to organic practice because you do need time to make sure that your land and your soil, you know, uh, the pesticides dissipated from your property. But IPM has been adapted also by conventional grower in terms of like, oh, we do IPM, but they're still using a lot of synthetic chemicals, including pesticides. So nowadays, um, we try to discourage uh, the use of IPM term, just go organic, just because that it could be uh, mislabeled. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Interesting. I, sh I should say, though, on, yeah. on that point, that um, I think there are some IPM advocates who would argue that you know, there is this sense, there are people using IPM or misusing the term, and it's hard to know how much they're using in terms of chemical pesticides, but uh, some of, there are some advocates out there who are clear to say, you know, it's integrated pest management, but it's not integrated pesticide management. So they actually want to serve the organic market as well. Like there's a Northeast IPM center up at Cornell, and they do a lot of work with organic farms trying to really help them manage pests. Um, um, and they're not necessarily promoting the synthetic pesticides. So, but the, all those nuances that Alex mentioned are there in terms of um, mm -hmm. the overuse of the, of the word and potential misuse of the system. If I can just do one more question yep. here because people seem a little confused about organic food and if any pesticides are used. What is the clear definition of organic food? Is it necessary to be pesticides free? Um, I can get that one. Um, there is a, in the U.S. there's a regulation, the National Organic Program administers it. It's called the, the National Organic Standard and it basically says that a farm or um, a manufacturer or distributor, but we, we could just talk about farms from here, are f that the farm uses methods that are in accordance with the National Organic Program, which sounds kind of complicated, but it, what it basically means is there are a set of permissible farm practices and then there is something called the national list. Any um, input that you use on your farm has to be on that national list. And those are um, sort of vetted for you know, pureness or anyway, they're acceptable. There's a lot of controversy about the national list, but you can use pesticides. If they are natural pesticides, you can use them. And, um, anything, and you can use anything that's on the national list. Now, every farm develops what's called an organic system plan, which they basically work with a certifier and they say, this is how I'm gonna farm the land. I'm gonna grow this here, grow this here. This is where my water is gonna go. This is where my waste is going to go. And um, they transition in for a period of three years um, <clears throat> before they can call their products organic. So every farm might have a slightly different organic system plan so it isn't like you do these five things and you're organic but you're basically following a plan that you've developed with a certifying agent and it only uses inputs that are on that national list and all of that is on the national organic program website 
What's a natural pesticide versus a synthetic one? I don't think of natural pesticides. Well, it's made out of natural products. So as opposed to a chemical, synthetic made in a lab versus, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it should degrade more quickly. Okay, do we have questions in the studio audience? Start right here. Yes, I'm sorry, can you wait for the microphone, please? Yeah. My question, I think, is related to what we are talking. I was always under the impression that IPM systems were some ways that some farmers would use not to go through the organic certification process. Is that something that is a pain in the neck, expensive? for the farmer to go through? <coughs> I'm, I'm ignorant about the process, so. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's time consuming. Um, you have to develop a system plan. You have to keep very careful records of what you're using. You have to, I mean, if you have to be okay with doing a certain amount of paperwork and it, there is a cost and there, um, there are, the cost, it depends upon the certifier, but usually it's a sliding scale depending upon like a percentage of your sales. So a big farm would pay a higher fee than a smaller farm would pay. So I know some farmers don't want to do it. They don't want to be bothered. Some farmers don't want to be engaged with the government. I mean, you know, there are a lot of reasons why people choose not to be certified. And to supplement <coughs> Caroline's answer to your question is that most of the farmers that if you happen to go to a farmer's market to buy your grocery, uh, you will notice that none of their uh, right. vegetable and fruit are labeled organic according to the USDA uh, guideline because they cannot afford, they will not afford it to do all the you know, bookkeeping and so on and so forth. And also, it's, it's when, I, when you, you just ask this question to the, to the farmer's markets people, says, so how, how much you spend on buying chemicals like fertilizers and fertilizer and chemicals? And they say, well, the reason I can make money because I don't buy those chemicals because right. they are very expensive. And then if I can make a living, I definitely don't want to uh, buy, spend money on those chemicals. So there is, there's a catch in terms of having or have not USDA organic label on the product. It depends upon whether the farmer can uh, have the money to, 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 to satisfy the regulation. But in most cases, small farms, especially people that sell their product in farmer's market, um, they don't do this because they cannot afford it. And also they cannot afford to buy chemicals. Mm -hmm. Okay, another question? Can you talk about effective methods of washing produce to remove pesticides? Because it doesn't seem very efficient to an applicator to be able to just wash it off with water. Mm -hmm. I can't. No, because well, I'm a girl. Give you a, give you a perfect example that the, uh, the, the, the pesticide that I mentioned in the bee, uh, honeybee study, a neonicotinoid, uh, it's, it behaves very differently to other pesticides because the, the, those pesticides can be absorbed mm -hmm. by the plant. So by the time they put down those neonicotinoids in the soil, right next to the strawberry uh, field, for example, uh, the strawberry that the consumer is eating already have those pesticides inside the strawberry because that's how they design how pesticides go to the plant and protect from the, the insect damage. So washing or, or not washing doesn't matter from that regard. But however, if you think about strawberry, they grow so close to the soil. So outside the strawberry probably will have some kind of contamination from the bug in the soil or from the irrigation water that could have some kind of contamination. So washing fruit before you eat it is a very good uh, practice and you should always do that. But knowing that the pesticides already inside the fruit, washing doesn't really make any difference whatsoever. Okay, yes? 
just want to follow up that question. So, uh, in terms of you know those kind of uh, uh, fruits, is there kind of difference in terms of their ability to absorb and enrich those pesticides from the soil? In in the in those kind of fruits, is there any kind of difference between fruit to fruit? For example, apples and strawberry, whether they they differ in terms of their ability to enrich those pesticides. Right. Uh, so the reason apple always on top of the thirteen thousand is not only because. Um, it has higher pesticide residue. It also has the, the, the many numbers of pesticides. That kind of get you on top of this. And nowadays, neonicotinoid has been used in a way that almost every fruit and vegetable that we consume has a little bit of neonicotinoid. So again, washing food before eating, try to avoid chemical exposure, probably not a good advice I would give it to you. But I do want to tell you that you should wash your fruit and vegetables. <laughs> because for other concerns, not for chemical, not for chemical right? reasons. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's go back to online again. Thanks. We do have some questions coming in about the types of incentives for conventional farmers who want to switch to organic. And uh, someone on our chat is asking, if all the farm systems change to organic farms, can we still produce enough food for the growing world population? Mm -hmm. And I know this is very related to incentives for organic farming, so maybe I we mean, could I discuss can say that. I and then you can too. Sure. Or you want to go first? Well, I can start yeah. with this survey that done in 2013 in Germany. 92% of a German consumer, they demand uh, locally grown food. And among those 92%, 77, they prefer a combination of locally grown and organic food. <coughs> so obviously there is a market um, I don't know about the United States. Other countries like Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, they barely have enough organic uh, food uh, that's sold in the market because the demand were huge. Right. I mean, I think people tend to take this organic and morph it into this feed the world versus save the planet debate, which is not one that I'm pr very fond of. I mean, okay, I, and I have a, an answer that might not be very satisfactory, but in my view, the world we could make changes to our food production system. I don't think we necessarily need to go to 100% organic, but if you think about how do you fill the competing needs of preserving the environment, protecting human health, and um, feeding people, considering that separately, well, maybe there is room for some industrial farmland. Maybe there is room for conventional farmland that isn't industrial, like maybe regional farms, and then maybe more, I'll use the word sustainable, which you know is loaded in and of itself in some organic farms. So I mean, I, I, I just encourage people to think about it in like, how do we shift our production system in a way that we're thinking about the long term and balancing the competing needs. I don't really um, know what would happen if all the farmland you know, converted to organic. I mean, so, some studies have shown that if in the developing world, if you actually were to start using um, <clears throat> more eco-friendly practices or practices of agroecology, production would go up because they don't use enough inputs. But in uh, the developed world, like the US and um, Europe, it, two big producing regions, probably yields would go down. So it's like an empirical question, but I don't know if it's like the best question. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, in the back. So my question is uh, regarding pesticides. Uh, is there um, are there uh, subsidized um, and also are there um, lobbies or other organization pressure organizations that push? So there are laws that stop um, other laws that could be more beneficial for health and environment, 
or um, push so the dose is still uh, higher than what uh, the medical community would um, recommend. And also, if though that pressure would be removed, would the difference between organic and conventional be just smaller? Because the conventional farmers just don't have that help. Um, okay, so I guess part of the, my hesitation is now like, because you were talking about the tolerances, and the tolerances are set by the EPA. And most of the farm policy goes through the farm bill in USDA. So, I mean, the farm bill is just this giant beast with its own life, and it has all of these different pieces. And I think the organic farmers feel left out of the farm bill. Like, there aren't enough policies that apply to them. And you can see it with arguments over how do you get crop insurance if you're an organic farmer? You know, what price do you have to pay for your insurance? And then if your crop fails, are you going to get compensated for the organic loss or a conventional loss? So, I mean, I don't think that the, the policy field is level for organic on the production side, but I don't know how that might relate to the EPA and the tolerances. I don't know whether you have some insights into I well, to, to answer your question, unfortunately, that we are in this industrialized agricultural model. So using pesticide is a must. It's not like you have a bug damage in this corner of your, your land and you treat it with some pesticide. No. The, the calendar says by Monday you have to spray pesticide and you spray, regardless whether you have a damage or not in, in, on, on your crop. So that's one thing that we definitely have to change. And the other thing that we definitely have to change is because we are moving toward this almost completely genetic modified uh, agriculture. As I mentioned, that by, by, by design, pesticide is part of the genetic modified agriculture. So how are we going to spin off this genetic modified agriculture? I think also have to rely on uh, the farm bill because the farm bill was written by a group of people that has a huge financial interest in genetic modified uh, industry. So until the day that we rewrite our farm bill in which to encourage younger generation who want to farm uh, better, healthier, and sustainable, but have no access to farm bill because you are not part of coho, that you operate this gigantic machinery on 4,000, 5,000 land. Uh, you, you are being shut down, uh, shut off from the farm bills. We have to change from the farm bill fundamentally. And that's why uh, every year when the farm bill is up for renew, it has is such a huge debate because the discussion of the modern agriculture in terms of sustainable local agriculture in terms of those organic agriculture. And, and as of today, I think the organic or sustainable agriculture still represent a very small fraction of uh, agriculture in this country, very small. Can I just follow up to one small thing? Because you said something that really struck me is that packaging of GMs and pesticides and chemicals. Because one of really the arguments given, put forth by the big companies as well, we're going to use these products and like we'll grow food where food isn't grown and we'll also reduce farmers' reliance upon pesticides. And so I think the part, you've just raised this point that is like directly in opposition to you know, what those promoting GM say. I, it, it's, I think it's worth noting. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. And, and this is why the, I think the industry not telling the truth to the government is that the reason we have this clap disorder because the pesticide that we've been using in those genetic engineering corn actually grow resistant. Nothing really kill yeah. in, in, in the soil. That's why they have to go to another pesticide, which is unfortunately neonicotinoid, that got sprayed out so quickly. In terms of the herbicide, you probably heard about this Roundup Ready, right? Mm -hmm. But what is the consequence of planting Roundup Ready crop for 10, 15 years? We have this new terminology called super weed. Yeah. Super weed actually pop up everywhere in this country. The, the problem with the super weeds, they grow so quick and so big and so huge, 
you cannot remove them by chemical or even machinery. So the farmer have to go go down to the soil and use their hand to pull out those those weed, and it's not sustainable that way. So what is the solution for those resistance? Put well, down more pesticides. More chemicals, yeah. <coughs> Put down more pesticides. So one. in a way that we are on this pesticide treadmill, yeah. it's definitely not sustainable. Yeah, we take one more from yep, the... I just don't want to neglect our online audience because yeah. they're active okay. today. <laughs> um, does the use of pesticides and or current GMO practices contribute to the alarming rise in the incidence of celiac disease and general gluten intolerance? Oh, did you read that article? There was... Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, <laughs> uh, again, the bottom line is that those type of research try to investigate whether certain chemical or genetic modified practice affecting human health, it's very prohibitive. There's no specific grant to support this type of research. You would be very naive to write a grant and hopefully NIH will fund you. You can try a hundred times, you will be rejected a hundred times. Because by definition, NIH said that you have to study something that causes adverse health effects. Mark, did you have any? Well, I was just going to say that I think the the issue, to my mind, is certainly one of great interest. And where where I see this being an interesting point is that there's a lot of interest now in like the microbiome, the gut flora, and you know one of the things, of course, that we struggle with in environmental epidemiology too is there's what's out there in the environment, and that's what there's what gets into your body, right? So you've got to absorb stuff to have it have an effect in your system. The interesting thing here is that it, what we're realizing more and more is that your gut flora and what's going on in your microbiome there plays a huge role in, not, in your overall health. We don't understand it very well at all. It's very, it's relatively new, but it, it plays a role not only in your health, but also in how you absorb things. And the thing about your gut flora is that what you take in from eating stuff you know, gets into your gut much more easily than you know, not all of it will get into your system, but if it starts affecting the flora that's in your gut, well, now you might be changing how you absorb things and how you have other stuff. So I don't know of any evidence that, that, that addresses that specific question, but I certainly think it's something that you know, would be worth looking into. I think there's reason to. Uh, I, just recently, mm -hmm. I saw someone that just ran these like, very simple associations, and they've, they found it. I don't, mm -hmm. I, I don't even know where I came across it. Maybe it was like one of those gray literature things. I'll see if I can find it Sorry, and send it to you. They found, they found this association between these um, GM, just what that question was, celiac disease, and mm -hmm. maybe it was the introduction of Roundup Ready. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah. Th thank you. I would just like to say all these questions will be posted on our site, and um, if our panelists ever have any time, they're very busy, maybe they can continue to answer them. Thanks. Okay. I think we're done for the day. Um, the conversation ends here, but we can carry on with the conversation um, uh, from now on um, at forumhsph.org. Thank you. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www dot forum hsph dot org. Thank you for sharing the forum.